0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Jordan, and I am one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free. Good morning, and welcome to everybody here in the auditorium. Good morning, and welcome to everybody over in the venue and to anybody watching online this morning. Good morning. We're so glad you could join us today. So we are going to be wrapping up our series this morning called Canceled, How Shame Ruins. And if you've been with us since the beginning of this series, you know we started this on Easter Sunday, and we talked about how Jesus endured shame for the joy of raising us out of shame, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in human form, came down to earth and he endured shame on the cross for the joy of raising us out of shame, that on the cross he was exposed, he was humiliated, he was belittled, he was mocked, and he endured all of this so that he could raise us out of shame. As we turn to him in trust and faith and repentance, we are united with him and he raises us out of shame. From there, we begin to tackle lies that shame tells us about ourselves and then God's truth that we respond to those lies with. So the first lie was, I must hide, that shame says, I must hide. But God's truth says, even in our shame, God pursues us. Even if we try to hide, God pursues us in our hiding. The next week, Pastor Rob was here, and Pastor Rob talked about Shame's lie says reconciliation isn't possible. The reconciliation is impossible. Pastor Rob shared with us God's truth is that reconciliation is a lifestyle, it's not an option. As people who've been reconciled to God, we are agents of reconciliation in the world around us. That it's the lifestyle that we live as um, people who've been reconciled to God. And the next week, The lie that shame said is, I am not enough. I'm not enough of a mom or a husband or a dad or a brother, sister, son or daughter. I'm not enough. But God's truth says, I am fully known and I'm fully loved, and that equals courage. That I am fully known by God. I'm fully loved by God, and that produces courage. Then last week, Pastor Adrian talked about the lie that shame says, that I am judged by everyone. I'm judged by everyone. Everyone's out to judge me, to pass a judgment against me. But God's truth says I'm judged by only one. There's only one judgment that truly matters, and that is, what does God say about me? And if you have trusted and believed in Jesus, surrendered yourself to him, then you've been united with him, and the judgment's already been passed. that says justified, made righteous, cleansed, made holy. And so we can live out of this judgment that's already been passed on us by God that says we're accepted. This morning, we're going to tackle a shame's lie that says my past defines me. My past defines me, which leads me to time travel. So I love time travel, that if you put time travel in your movie or your TV show or your book, I'm going to eat it up and I'm going to read it. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to consume it because I love time travel. So if Elon Musk came out tomorrow and he's like, guys, I built a time machine for 50 bucks, you can go back in time anytime you want and do something. You better believe I'm giving him my $50, I'm going back in time, and I'm gonna punch myself in the face. Because <laughs> there are things that I have done in my life that I wish I could undo. And so if there was a time machine, I would go back and I would say, stop it. What are you doing, Jordan? Do you understand what this is going to do to us? Do not do this thing. And I want to undo things that I've done in my life. Places where shame has creeped in because of what I've done to somebody else. If I had a time machine, i also go back to places in my life where other people have done things to me that have produced shame. That I would go back to the younger version of myself and put an arm around me. and Say, hey, do not let this thing define you. Don't let what they said to you define you. Don't let what they've done to you define you. This is not who you are. That if you're in this room and you carry shame from something that someone has done to you or something you have done to somebody else, Then you may feel these words about yourself, one of them, or more of them, or all of them. People who carry shame, they often feel worthless, or empty, or unacceptable, or less than human. That they're disgraced, and rejected, and contaminated. They experience that they're exposed, or a failure, or an outcast, or unlovable, or repulsive. That people that experience this deep shame, they feel this way about themselves, whether they can cover it with a mask that feels like, I'm fine, but deep down they feel like they're worthless. And so throughout this series, we've talked about a number of places that shame can come from, but this morning we want to talk about how shame can come from sin. It can come from sin that we've committed, it can also come from sin that's been committed against us. So if you're in this room, you may carry shame from verbal, physical, or sexual abuse, from sexual promiscuity or an alcohol related accident or incident from an abortion or an abandonment of a parent or a spouse or a relative from being in poverty or attempting suicide or the suicide of a loved one from humiliation or being humiliated or feeling like you're a failure now i want you to know that as we work through that i'm work through this message this morning i am making the assumption that you've gone through this process That in some way you've sinned, that if your shame comes from your own sin, that you sinned, and then you experience guilt. That you experience this, God has a standard. I've fallen below that standard. I feel bad about this, that something is wrong, and I want to apologize. I repent. I turn away from my sin. I turn towards God and say, God, I agree with you that what I did was sin. Would you forgive me? That I trust and believe in Jesus. I'm surrendering myself to him. Would you forgive me? And then what's supposed to come then is forgiveness and restoration. And in many places that people experience that. But if you carry deep areas of sin, deep areas of shame, sorry, shame, that my guess is that you get to that repentance, this trust, but when you're supposed to experience forgiveness and restoration, you just experience shame. And you feel like the things that I've done are too bad to be forgiven the things that I did to other people are too bad to be forgiven what's been done to me is too bad to be forgiven that maybe he forgives these minor sins but not these ones that I have to carry this so that's what we're going to talk about today that if you're someone that says I've sinned in this way but I've never asked for forgiveness and that's your first step is to say God would you forgive me for this thing God I want to be restored I want to agree with you what I did was wrong would you forgive me But we're going to talk about the people that have gone through that process, but they still feel shame. They still feel like forgiveness is elusive to them. And they feel like this lie that shame says that my past defines me is actually true. And they would say, these things that I've done in the past, these things that have been done to me, they actually do define me. So we're going to look this morning at about a man named Saul, and the Bible also calls him Paul. So it refers to the same guy with two different names, Saul and Paul, because Saul and Paul... He did some major wicked, terrible things in his past, but then he overcomes those things and he experiences God's forgiveness and restoration. And so we want to look at him and see how, how does he get there and how can we get there too? So would you pray with me? Father God, God, I pray for all my friends that are here in the auditorium, over in the venue and watching online. God, I, I ask for your, for your help this morning. That I know that there are, men and women and children in these places that they feel deep shame. That there are these things deep down that they just don't feel like you've forgiven them. They don't feel like you forget them. They don't feel like, God, you care about them. They feel like they are worthless and they are forgotten and they have been exposed. God, I pray that you would use your word this morning to get underneath that shame and to root it out. God, that you replace those feelings of worthlessness with love you replace those feelings of unaccepted with, I'm accepted by God. God, would you work into their hearts, God, these truths that you were for them and you were with them. God, would you please help me to be clear and concise this morning as I convey this message. Pray this all in your son's name. Amen. So let me, give you some, let me give you the definition we've been working with on shame throughout this series. So we have been using this definition that shame is the idea that I am bad. And I feel horrible about myself. So I feel like I am terrible, that I am less than human. I am worthless, and I feel like I'm worthless. I feel like I have less value than other people around me. So there's a guy, again, named Saul and Paul. The Bible uses both names to refer to him. And he was a high-ranking Jewish religious leader. He's a Pharisee. And he is a Pharisee at the time when uh, the early church is getting started. Jesus Christ has come, he's lived on earth, he's died on the cross, he's been resurrected, he has been ascended into heaven, and he sent the Holy Spirit who is now empowering the church to carry this message of reconciliation between God and his people to all people, letting them know that if they trust and believe in Jesus, they can be restored to him. And there's an early church leader named Stephen who is talking to a large group of Jewish people and he's telling them that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he's come to rescue and to redeem everybody who will trust in him. And he's walking through the Old Testament narrative, talking about their history and how they point to Jesus. And this crowd gets really angry. They do not like this. The Bible says they cover their ears and they grind their teeth at him and they rush forward in a mob and they grab him and they drag him outside of the city. They probably throw him in a ditch. And then they take their jackets off so that probably they can get a better range of motion to throw rocks. And they throw the jackets down at Saul's feet. And Saul guards their jackets while they throw rocks at Stephen until Stephen dies. And it says that Saul watches this and he approves of them killing Stephen. And then it says that Saul begins to breathe out murderous threats against the church. That he wants to destroy the church he wants to wipe it off the face of the earth. So he goes from place to place searching for anybody who would say that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he arrests them, and he has them thrown in jail, and he votes to condemn them to death. And he goes from place to place trying to destroy the church. And so one day he's on this road to a city called Damascus, and as he's going down this road, the resurrected Jesus Christ shows up, and he says, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And he takes Saul, and he turns his life upside down, and he takes Saul from being a persecutor, destroyer of the church to being an early leader in the church. And he causes him to be a leader, a builder of the church. And then he goes by Paul from then on. The Bible begins to refer to him as Paul. And Paul is a, a major leader in the early church. He writes a large portion of the New Testament. And he writes this letter to a man named Timothy. So you fast forward 27 to 30 years after... Paul is watching Stephen die, and he is writing to a man named Timothy. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn to 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. So 1 Timothy is in the New Testament, so it's towards the back of your Bible. It comes after Thessalonians, but before Hebrews. So if you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far to the right. You can go back to the left, and you will find 1 Timothy. So do want to let you know that we are starting a new series next week that's going to be a Mark It Up series. And so we are asking everybody, would you bring your physical Bibles to church? We're going to be working through the minor prophets in the Old Testament, which is a part of the Bible that a lot of people are not familiar with. And so we want you to get connected with that area. want you to be able to find it in your Bibles and to feel the tactile, like touching the pages. So we'd love for you to bring your Bibles to church um, next week and throughout the summer as we go through this minor prophets series. All right, so 1 Timothy So Paul was writing to Timothy, who was another church leader, and he's trying to teach him how to uh, lead the church. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. She says, I thank Jesus Christ, that he strengthens me to carry out this role, but I thank him even more that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me, choosing me to serve. He says, I know who I was. I know the shameful past that I have. I know these things that could define me and could say that he can't work in the church. He can't lead the church. He was destroying the church. He was killing Christians. Like I wonder if Paul at times wrestled with, he could close his eyes and he could still see Stephen dying. And he still struggles with shaking that. But he gets to this place where he no longer defines himself by his past. He says this in verse 13. He says, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. He says, There was once a time when I was blaspheming. I was going around telling everybody that Jesus wasn't God. Say, Jesus isn't the Messiah. He's not God. He says, That's what I told people. And now I'm telling people, No, he is God. He says that I was also a persecutor. I was trying to destroy the church. I wanted to wipe it off the face of the earth. So the very thing I'm trying to teach you how to lead now, there was a point in my life I was trying to destroy it. And I wasn't just trying to destroy it with words, I was trying to destroy it with my fists. He says, I was a violent man, that I hurt people. I didn't just say, hey, no, this is a bad idea. I said, no, I tried to destroy these people. I had them thrown in prison. I condemned them. He says, but I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. He says that I didn't understand that what I was doing was wrong, that I was acting out of unbelief, that I didn't believe Jesus was God. I wonder how many of us, if we think back about the shameful things that we've done, would say, yes, I acted also out of ignorance and unbelief, that there was a part that ignorance played, a part that unbelief played in what I did and the choices that I made, that I wish I could undo, but I can't. Then verse 14, he says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He says abundantly. It wasn't just a little, a drizzle of grace or mercy. It wasn't just a sprinkling of grace and mercy. It wasn't just enough grace and mercy. It was an abundance. It was an overflowing waterfall of grace and mercy that was poured out on him. Then he goes on in verse 15. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. He says, okay, here's what I want you to know, Timothy. What I'm about to tell you, this is a good statement. This is trustworthy. You can build your life on this. He says, you should fully accept this. You should fully get behind this. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So this is what's trustworthy. This is what you can build your life on. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He says, Of whom I am the worst. He says, This is the purpose that Jesus came into the world. He came to save sinners. He came to save people with shameful past, with broken past, with things they wish they could undo, things they wish they could make better choices about. He says, That's who they, he came to save. Those people. Sinners like you and like me. And then Paul adds, He says, Of whom I am the worst. He says, "If you rounded up everybody on the planet and he says, "Which one of these people are the worst of all the sinners?" He says, "You would find it in me." He says, "I'm the worst." But then he goes on in verse 16, "But for that very reason that I'm the worst of all the sinners, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. He says, "I'm an example. I'm a trophy of God's grace that because I'm the worst of sinners, God rescues me, he holds me up, and he says, look at Paul. So you see this guy? This guy's a scoundrel. This guy is the worst of all of the sinners on the planet, and I rescued him. If I can save this guy, there is no one I can't save. If I could redeem and restore this guy, there is nobody I can't, res- I can't save. There is nobody I can't redeem. So he says He wanted to display his patience, that he was long-suffering with me, that he worked with me so that he could restore and redeem and forgive me through trust and faith in Jesus. He says he wants everybody to trust and believe and to have eternal life through him. Then he goes on in verse 17 and says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That he bursts forth in praise, that when you realize that you were a scoundrel, a wretched person in Jesus Christ saved you, that God was willing to rescue you and to give you a hope and a future, to call you to serve him, that the natural response is to praise. The natural response is to say, there's only one king who would be willing to forgive, only one king who is immortal and invisible, the only God, he deserves honor and glory forever and ever. So our first takeaway this morning that Paul wants us to see is that God doesn't begrudgingly forgive our pasts. He delights to forgive them. God does not begrudgingly forgive our pasts. He delights to forgive them. That he's not up there going, oh, I really didn't want her to ask for forgiveness. Oh, I didn't really want him to ask for forgiveness. I only wanted to forgive the the nice sinners. Not these people that had really shameful pasts. That he says, I'm here to save sinners. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. But I think, especially people that have deep areas of shame, that as you think about yourself, you think that God doesn't really want to forgive me. That when I asked for tr- ask to forgive for forgiveness, when I turned to God in trust and faith, he was like, no, not you. You weren't supposed to pray that. You weren't supposed to surrender yourself to me. It was the person next to you, not not you. That some of us, I think if we're honest, we feel like if Jesus Christ showed up to church, he would avoid us. That if he was out in the hallway and we tried to go talk to him, like, oh, look at the time. I gotta get out of here. Sorry. I'm hit my quarter for today, I'm talking to people. That he would avoid us. Like we, we feel like God doesn't want anything to do with us. That we we've lawyered him into forgiving us because he said he would and we did what we were supposed to do, we believed, but we don't think he likes us. We don't think he's really forgiven us. We don't think he wants to be around us. But think for a moment. If you were here on Easter Sunday when Pastor Adrian talked about the prodigal son, go back to this parable that Jesus tells. So he tells about a father who has two sons. He has an older son and a younger son. And the younger son comes to his father and he basically says, Dad, I wish you were dead. I I really want my inheritance. I wanna go and do whatever I wanna do. I don't wanna work here on this dumb farm with you. Give me what's coming to me. And the father, does it? He goes and he sells the son's portion of the farm. and He gives him the money and the son leaves. And when I think about the story, I think about a father who sits on a porch and he watch, watches a son walk over a hill and he thinks that's the last time I'm ever going to see my son. Not because I hate him or I don't want him to come back but because he's so hard hearted he's never going to come back over that hill. But if you know the story, the son goes and he blows all the money. And he has no friends, he's has no one to turn to and so he finds a job working with pigs. And he feeds pigs, pig slop. And says he longs to eat the food that the pigs are eating. The way you think about cupcakes and baked goods, that's how he looks at this pig slop. That's how dark his life has become. He's like, oh, if I could just eat that. And then he realized, what am I doing? Like the people that work for my dad, they have a way better life than this. I should just go home and say, Dad, would you please, I know I can't be your son. But what I've done is too shameful, too terrible for me to be a son, but would you just let me work for you? you don't have to acknowledge me, you don't have to talk to me, but can I just work for you because this is a better life than what I've got here. And so he begins to walk home. And then when I think about the story, I think about a dad who still sits on a porch because he's not given up on his son. And he waits day after day for him to come back over that hill, thinking he's probably not going to come over the hill. But then one day, this guy who has got shaggy hair and he's a mess walks over the hill and he thinks, man, that guy kind of, he has walks the way my son walks. As he gets closer, he realizes, no, that's my son. And the way we feel about God, that we think he must think about us, we think the story says that he got up and he went inside and he said, I never want to talk to that guy again. I, don't have a, I only have one son. I don't have two sons anymore. Or we feel like he gets up and he walks around to the back of the house. He says, yeah, he can work here, but I will never acknowledge that he exists. That's how we feel like God must talk to us. But that's not how the story goes. The story goes is that he runs to his son, his son who has shamefully said, I wish you were dead, his son who has abandoned them, whose son has gone off and he got what was coming to him. That son comes back and he runs to him and he throws his arms around him and he kisses him and he says, I love you. And his son wants to go into this, I can't be your son. He says, no, 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 you are back. He says, my son was dead but now he's alive again. He says, bring him a robe and he clothes him says bring him a ring for his finger bring him sandals for his feet kill the fatted calf because we need to celebrate because this my son was dead and now he's alive that everybody all of us need to realize that we are the son who have wandered that there is shame in you that you're just feeling like God's not willing to forgive you look at this story and you realize that shame God is willing to forgive that the way the father responds to the son is the way that God the father responds to us He doesn't avoid us in the hallway, but he runs to us and he throws his arms around us. He says, this my son, this my daughter was dead and now they're alive again. And they celebrate, he celebrates. He delights to forgive you. He wants to draw near to you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not drawing back from you. He's not avoiding you. He says, this is my son, this is my daughter who was dead and now they're alive again. Let's celebrate There's a pastor named Dane Orland, and he wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly, which is a fantastic book. And he says this about mercy. He says that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most Make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. So part of the solution to shame is to understand that God does not draw back from you the way you would draw back from you if you knew all the things that you know about yourself. Part of the solution is knowing that God draws nearer to you because of those things. Because this is why he came. He came to save sinners. He didn't come looking for squeaky clean people that had it all together. He came for people that were a mess, who knew they were a mess, and said, would you help me? Would you forgive me? Would you restore me? Really quickly, there are two ways that the enemy uses shame to destroy. Because the enemy wants to destroy you. And he would love to use your shame to destroy you. The first is he convinces us that we have no worth and are unloved by God. That he says, you're worthless. You think you could have any value after you did this? You think you could have any value after this was done to you? You don't have value. You don't have worth. You think God could want anything to do with you? And he whispers these lies to us because he wants to separate us from the love of God and he wants to destroy us. There's another author named Philip Yancey And he wrote a book called What Good is God? And he quotes a pastor in there named John Piper. And this is what he says. says, The author and pastor John Piper insists that the worst tragedy in sexual sins is not fornication or pornography or other acts of moral failure. The tragedy is that a gnawing sense of guilt and unworthiness over sexual failure can overtake us, causing us to feel cast aside from God's use and even God's love wallowing in guilt, we shrink from the forgiveness God freely offers. This is the most tragic thing about sexual sin, whether it is a choice that someone made or something that's been done against them, is that it leaves them with this feeling of unworthiness, this gnawing guilt that God couldn't love me. And even if God could love me, he could never use me. I've been too damaged, too broken for God to want to be a part of my life, to want to use me. That's not the truth. The truth is God draws near. The second way that the enemy uses shame to destroy is that he uses these wounds uh, in us and he wounds us so deeply that when we have a brother or sister in Christ or a mentor or a pastor or someone who loves us and wants to speak into our lives, that they see an area of blindness in us where we are striving to follow Christ, but there's an area that we just may have this big disconnect, where we know this is what God's calling us to do, but we are all the way down here. When they try to speak into that area of life, that oftentimes if you're deeply wounded, you can't accept that as an act of love. You can't accept that as them wanting what's best for you. What you hear is them saying, I'm worthless, and finally you figured it out. That I've known it for a long time, and you've been trying to tell me that I'm not, and now you realize that I am, and this is, this is exhibit number one, that I don't have this together. And that is not at all the, the purpose of the person who is bringing this to you. They bring it out of love and care, and their desire is to help you be accountable to God and help you to grow. They don't want you to stay stuck in this area. And so these are two ways that shame can destroy us. And this is why it's so crucial and so important for us to trust and to believe in what Jesus says about us. To draw near to him and know that he draws near to us. So what do we do with our shameful pasts? What do we do? What is God's truth that speaks to this? God's truth is that my past does not define me. I am defined by God's accepting, cleansing, and transforming love. This is the truth my past, what you've done in your past, whether it's been done to you or by you, it does not define you. You are defined by God's accepting, cleansing, and transforming love, that he has drawn near to you, and he accepts you, he cleanses you, and he transforms you by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this is what defines us. So how do we apply this to our lives? So I encourage you, I encourage you, this sounds silly, but I encourage you to write it down, that you write out the lie that you're believing about yourself. You don't have to do it right now, but you write out the lie that you're believing about yourself, and then you write out God's truth. So if you think that you're worthless because a parent or a teacher or a coach or a friend said that you were not going to amount to nothing when you were in the fifth grade, and it wounded you and you believed at that point, I am nothing, I'm always going to be nothing, And so you believe that, and you've tried to pretend that it's not the case, and you put on a nice mask, but at the end of the day, you feel like I'm worthless because of this. Then you write that down. Say, I I feel worthless because when I was in the fifth grade, my dad said I was never going to amount to anything. And then you write the truth after it. But the truth is I matter because Jesus Christ died for me. The truth is I matter because I'm chosen by God, and God says I have a purpose and a plan for me. Or if you say, I'm worthless because I was sexually promiscuous or I was abused or whatever it is, you put that down you say, but the truth is I've been cleansed, I've been made righteous by God. And then the next step is that you get into community and you share this with someone that you trust that loves Jesus. So whether it's a life group member or a friend that loves Jesus, but you sit down and you say, hey, I've never told anybody this, but I felt like I've been worthless since the fifth grade because my dad said that I wasn't going to amount to anything. And I try to pretend that it didn't bother me. I try to pretend that it hasn't shaped me, but it has. But I want now, I want now to believe what God says about me. Because I do believe that he says that I matter. Would you pray that I would believe that? Would you pray that that would get down into my heart? It would get underneath the shame and it would root it out. So let me take you real quickly to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. It will be up on the screen so you don't have to turn there. But these are some beautiful verses that talk about who we are who we are, that Peter is writing to a a group of Christians, and he says this about us. He says, but you are a chosen people, that if you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you are a chosen people, that God says, I wanted you, that you weren't picked last. He said, I want you on my team. He says, I want you, you're chosen. He says, you were a royal priesthood, that you're not a nobody, you're royalty. That God has adopted you and you into his family and now you are an adopted son or daughter of the king, you're royalty. And you're part of a priesthood. That God has given you a calling and a purpose. He says, you have reason to be here. You have a reason that I see something in you, that I trust you, that I'm giving you responsibility to be an image bearer that would reflect my goodness and my mercy and my grace to the world around you. He says, You are a holy nation. That if you feel dirty or reviled or disgusting, that is not the truth. The truth is that you are a holy people, that God has made you holy. He has cleansed you. And that is what defines you now. He says, You're God's special possession. That God says, You're special to me. You matter to me. You belong to me. I love you that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, that if shame has ruled your life, you have lived in darkness. But now, Peter says, no longer do you live in darkness, you've been called to live in light. He says you've been set free from darkness, darkness has no more hold on you, and you get to walk out and live in the light. He says once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. For many people that experience deep shame, they feel like there's no place I belong, no place for me, but Jesus is saying, God is saying through Peter, you belong with me. You have a place with me. You have a home with me. There is a spot for you with me. And he says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If your shame comes from something that someone did to you, then you did not receive mercy when they did those things. You received wrath. But Peter is saying, now you are going to receive mercy. Now Jesus Christ is going to enter into your life through trust and faith, and he's going to make his home with you. He's going to cleanse and to transform and change all these things. So by faith, we have been united to Christ. By faith, we're wanted. By faith, we've been given a purpose and a calling. By faith, we've been made clean and holy. We have value. We no longer live in darkness. We have a place, and we belong We've been made new, and God is not looking to crush you. He's not looking to get you. He's not looking to turn away from you. He's not drawing back from you. He is coming near to you because he loves you, because you are his son, you are his daughter, and you are precious to him. So real quickly, two groups of people I want to talk to. One is people that feel deep shame from sexual sin, whether it is... Sin that you committed or sin that was committed against you. That I think that what he's saying in there is true. What Pastor Piper was saying earlier was true. That people do feel like God doesn't want to use them if they have this in their past. They feel unclean and dirty. And that's not the truth. The truth is that you've been made holy and you've been made righteous. The truth is that is not what defines you, but it's God's love that defines you. That when God looks at you, he doesn't see those sins, but he sees the love of Jesus covering you perfectly. So please, stop looking at yourself that way, because God does not look at you that way anymore. I also want to to take a brief moment to address the shame that women and men may feel from abortion. It's important that we do acknowledge that abortion is a sin. We are right to strive to protect the unborn and the innocent and pray for an end to abortion in our country. At the same time, we must strive to acknowledge that there are many women and men who have made the choice to have an abortion or to encourage their partner to have an abortion, and they've come to regret this choice and feel deep shame and regret. My heart has been burdened for these men and these women who carry this shame. In the past weeks and in the weeks to come, this topic has been at the forefront of the news and on social media. The enemy would like nothing more than to use this to destroy these women and men and tell them that their past defines them and that there is no forgiveness or restoration for them. We should be careful how we talk about this topic because if we are not careful, we can unintentionally be conveying the message that this sin is too dark for Jesus to forgive, which is not the truth. We believe that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ covers every sin no matter what it is. If you have had an abortion or encouraged someone to, your sin is not too great that God cannot forgive, heal, and restore. God offers forgiveness, healing, and restoration to all who repent and trust in him. Your past does not define you. You're defined by God's accepting, cleansing, and transforming love. And that's true no matter what our sin is. And so I don't know where your shame comes from. I don't know if your shame comes from something that you have done or it comes from something that's been done to you. I don't know if you've carried the lie for a long time that God is reviled by you, that he draws back from you, that he wants nothing to do with you, but that is a lie. God loves you. He wants to draw near to you, and if you turn to him in trust and faith and repentance, he will draw near to you. He will work in your heart, and he will work in your life. So the choice that we have now, the question we have now is what are we going to believe Because we stand at this crossroad. And on one side is the lie that my past defines me. And there are things that we've done in our past and things that have been done to us that stand back there that we could let define us. Or instead, by an act of faith, we could say, no, I'm going to believe that what God says about me is the truth. I am going to believe that when he says that I am holy, that I am holy. I'm going to believe that when he says that I am cleansed, I am cleansed. I'm going to believe that when he says, I am righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, that I am going to believe that that's who I am. And we have to battle, and it's a battle, because it's simple, but it's really difficult. That day after day, we have to say, This is a lie. So when shame comes to you and says, God doesn't love you, you say, No, that's a lie. The truth is, God loves me dearly because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. When shame says, There's no forgiveness for you, you go, That's a lie. God has forgiven me because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so we, day after day, battle for that. But it's a battle, and it's going to be a long process, because for many of us, shame has told us lies for years, if not decades. And so there's these old paths we have in our mind that says, I don't have value, I don't have worth, I don't have these things. And we believe those so easily. And so it's going to take a while to, to build these new pathways that say, no, I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm made new. I'm brought into God's family. I have a place, all because of Jesus. So God's truth is that my past does not define me. I am defined by God's accepting, cleansing, and transforming love. So I hope that truth gets into your heart and it roots out the shame that is there. Let me pray. Father God, God, would you help us to believe what you say about us? God, would you help us to experience your grace and your mercy? To not let us have it be a cognitive thing that we can agree to, but it to be a reality of our hearts and our lives. God, I am convinced that there are people in this room that feel so unloved that they struggle to believe that you would love them because they just can't believe that anyone would. God, would you get underneath that shame and would you help them to believe that you love them? God, would you help them to see themselves in the prodigal son that as the father throws his arms around his son, you throw your arms around us. God, as you restore that son, you restore us as well. God, would you restore what is broken so that we also might be able to join Paul and say that I am a trophy of God's grace. I am an example to others that if you can save someone like Paul, if you can save someone like Jordan, then there is no one you can't save. God, would you help us to be these trophies? Would you help us to not live in the shadows, but to come into the light? And God, would you help us to love you and to know that we're loved by you? We pray this all in your son's name, amen.